there, and welcome to another episode of my weekly show. I'm Father Roderick, and I have a lot of stuff to talk about. Noah's Ark on the Moon. That was an interesting science project that I read about. Uh, I'll also talk a little bit about uh, deep fake technology and more. Stay tuned. This episode is brought to you thanks to my patrons. It's a wonderful community of very friendly, kind, supportive people over at patreon.com slash fatherroderick. And we'll meet all the time on the Discord server, which you get access to if you become a patron. So uh, if you can help, that is fantastic. And welcome to the community if you're already helping. Thank you so much. If you can't, if you have uh, other situations that require your financial attention, uh, then thank you so much for the privilege of your time and for your support by uh, contributing to uh, to the podcast by joining the chat or by posting uh, or, or reposting the show, etc. Um, always happy to have you as a part of my community of followers. Do you know what's going on? This is what's happening in your world. They said Catholics rule. We got Boston, South America, the good part of Ireland, and we're making serious inroads in Mozambique, baby. You've taken your first step into a larger world. I've been rather busy this week, and <laughs> that's an understatement. Uh, I, I, in the span of seven days, I edited one TV show in one day, which is a kind of a new record for me, um, and filmed four TV episodes on location, and I did a, an online webinar. Um, it, it was, uh, yeah, quite something. Two more TV shows to film next week, and then I can fully focus on my uh, moving process because I'm, as you know, going to move two and a half weeks from now to my new home, and next week I'll be able to tell you where I'm going. Um Still a lot of work to do, but I'm glad that the, um, the everything is coming together and it, the the whole process I think is gonna it's gonna be uh, relatively smooth. I'm so happy that at least I can outsource the rest of the worries and the TV work to uh, someone else, uh, and I don't have to <laughs> do that in in combination with uh, with uh, packing my stuff and and moving. Uh, at the same time. So um, I'm not sure if I'm overdoing it, but I, I'd rather work a little bit harder now than to have all that stress at the very last moment. So all in all, I'm pretty content with uh, the current situation. If you want to hear more about what's going on, I invite you to take a listen to the latest episode for week 10 of my podcast, The Walk, where I will fill you in on everything that's going on. How do you not like movies? They're predictable. Like, the guy gets the girl and that kid sees dead people and Darth Vader is Luke's father. Not liking movies is like not liking puppies. They're fine. I just get bored and never make it to the end. You know, you need a movie education. You need a movication. I'm going to give it to you. So I still miss... Uh, a new episode, seeing a new episode of WandaVision on Friday. I really like that they're rolling out these, these new shows uh, week after week. It gives you so much anticipation. It's kind of like the old days where you you had to wait for the next part of the story for, for a week. And then in between, uh, while you were waiting in between episodes, you could just chat with uh, with fellow fans about, you know, what, what you think is going on. Uh, I, I remember from the series Lost and Battlestar Galactica, uh, that was actually the best part of the experience. It was the anticipation. It was the curiosity. Instead of binge-watching, I, I don't know, I'm kind of over binge-watching. From, from time to time, I do that with shows I want to catch up with, like with The Expanse. I watch a few episodes every week. But I do appreciate the current kind of slow rollout that you see on mostly on, on uh, Disney+, Plus and also from time to time on other streaming services as well. So um, the uh, Disney had one last surprise for us on Disney Plus, which was a making of documentary called um, Marvel Studios Assembled: The Making of WandaVision, and it is another one of those one-hour documentaries that they did the same for uh, for Star Wars, for The Mandalorian. And it is really interesting. They go in depth. They show you how it's made. They interview the cast. It's not just a promotional piece. Um, no, it's actually quite enjoyable. And you learn more about the choices that they made and why they told the story. 
uh, in a certain way. And, uh, and it also gives you a little bit, kind of shows you a bit of the magic behind the scenes, which is very appropriate in a show that is about magic. So um, they even posted a trailer on YouTube, which I'm going to play, and hopefully it won't uh, be blocked because of copyright reasons. <laughs> we'll see. Uh, maybe it helps if I uh, reroute the sound through my roadcaster, as usual. That is always messed up a little bit. So here we go. Uh, guess who? Oh, is that my host behind me? It certainly is. <laughs> Lovely to make your acquaintance. <laughs> rolling. Welcome to the first live sitcom taping in Marvel Studios history. I haven't been in front of a live audience since 1884. Oh, is that right? Yeah. How cool is that? They, they filmed these first few episodes in front of a live audience. It's such an homage to American sitcoms throughout the 20th century. The Marvel MCU is the largest episodic experiment ever. When you're on these big films and you get all those pieces moving, it feels really special. It's such a beautiful puzzle box. So excited to finally be able to say this out loud. It's going to be so exciting for our fans to dissect the way it unravels. We are in uncharted waters. Marvel Studios Assembled, the making of WandaVision. Original special now streaming. And stream all WandaVision episodes only on Disney+. Plus. Well, highly recommended. It's really fun to see uh, the behind the scenes. Of course, you don't want to watch this documentary if you haven't seen the series, the first season. I actually don't know if we already have... Uh, if we're going to get a second season, because the story itself is kind of, you know, self-contained. Um, and the entire, you know, concept of, of why the show is called WandaVision and with the sitcoms, etc. I don't think you can extend that to another season, but maybe maybe there's another way in which they're going to continue the story. I'm definitely looking forward to seeing more of Wanda and Vision because this was this was glorious. And I hope that the people that uh, stopped watching after the first two episodes went back and 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 still, you know, uh, uh, joined joined the rest of the fan community in 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 uh, admiring what what Disney has done. Um, there were a few red herrings, and they said that they set up some stuff, and everybody was a buzz like, "Oh my gosh, they're going to see, we're going to have this fusion of, uh, of 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 universes, and this is going to tie in with uh, with um, uh, what is it?" Uh, the uh, the multiverse multiverse and and everything um, because of the appearance of a certain a certain character that was played by uh, an actor who was actually in the X Men version of the Marvel universe and so to see that actor appear here in this in this MCU which is kind of different from what the X Men did when it was still under uh, the wings of, of of the Sony Corporation um, but. That didn't pan out, at least not not right away. And now there are lots of fan theories that maybe originally Disney uh, planned and Marvel planned the, the, this series in a different way. They wanted to only show us this, I think, in two years from now. And, and because of COVID and all the other, you know, the entire production schedule of the Marvel uh, movies and TV shows has been... Uh, uh, mixed up uh, because they had to adapt, of course, to the new situation. So we got to see this first, and uh, so maybe maybe that is why they made certain choices story-wise. Um, I guess we'll, we'll know we'll know in a few years when we've seen the entire story. Um, of course, this is not the end of of Marvel TV shows uh, this year. We're gonna in a few weeks from now we're gonna see um, uh, the Winter Soldier. Um, that I think there's also a trailer for that let me take a look actually i didn't look that up winter soldier and falcon trailer i haven't seen this one yet so you're getting my first reaction here um and that of course is kind of feels much closer to the movies uh at least more it's, it's much more of the kind of the the stuff that fans expect whereas Wanda, wandavision was of course completely a, a surprise the the entire concept the, the the approach the way it was filmed the humor I loved it. So, who would like to start? Mr. Barnes, why does Sam aggravate you? 15 seconds to drop! So what's our plan? Great. It's a very different tone. Superheroes. 
cannot be allowed to exist. I have no intention to leave my work unfinished. The wall's upside down right now. Where do we start? Playing. Oh yeah? What is it? Is you ready? Here we go again, huh? We've been grinding hard on the job. Can't take that from us. Are you ready? Oh. Is you ready? Ready? You ready? Oh. Ready? Ready? Is you ready? Oh. Are you ready? Ready? Is you ready? Well, hello, girl. Kick your ass. See? That wasn't so hard. Are you ready? Hey. Is you ready? Ready? Okay. You say you ready. What are you doing? Ready. Are you having a staring you contest? Are you ready? Ready? Is you ready? Just blank. Sweet Jesus. I mean, how old are you? Language. Language. <laughs> Language. Okay, I don't know. Um, yeah. It's very different. It's much louder than WandaVision. At least the trailer is. Uh, is definitely more gritty. The I whole idea of superheroes are no longer welcome. It's a little, it feels a bit like uh, uh, like what DC did with uh, um, the Justice League and with uh, uh, Superman versus uh, Batman versus Superman. Um, uh, well, let's be let's be honest. This, this trailer does not get me that excited. But it's maybe also because I didn't care that much. Uh, for these two characters in the in the movie series either. So I, I don't know. Of course, this is just first impressions from a trailer. It doesn't really say anything. And this being Disney, this being Marvel, I'm pretty sure they're going to do a good job. But I have to say, when I saw the trailer for, for, for WandaVision, I was much more excited. I felt like, wow, I don't think we've ever seen something like this on TV. This is more, yeah... Yeah, it kind of feels very familiar. It's got all the tropes. It's got action. It's, uh, I, I don't know. Mm, we'll wait and see. Uh, love to hear your thoughts, by the way. But uh, so far, still not feeling it. But uh, maybe, maybe I'll, I hope I'm wrong. Um, then, very good news for all you Star Trek fans. Um, Star Trek Strange New Worlds will start, or actually has started production. And they've also told us uh, that five more actors, in addition to the three that we already knew from the, uh, uh, the episodes in, on, on Star Trek Discovery, uh, have joined the crew um, and, and, of course, the cast of, uh, of Star Trek Strange New Worlds. Um, this is going to be another show on Paramount Plus, which is the new name for uh, CBS All Access. And I'm pretty sure next year they'll come up with another name for some reason, everything Paramount related, it seems to be a little bit kind of, I don't know, PR-wise, I don't understand. Uh, I'd say stick with one brand instead of changing it, changing it up all the time. Make up your mind. Um, so the uh, series Strange New Worlds is exciting because it harkens back to the years that not uh, Captain Kirk, but Captain Christopher Pike was at the helm of the USS Enterprise. And so it's kind of like a prequel to the original series in a, I think, more exciting way than Star Trek Enterprise was. And uh, they have recast, of course, some of the roles. The first, of, uh, of course, being uh, Christopher Pike, but also Spock has been recast. And we've already seen, of course, Spock in um, in, in, in this current cast, like the, with the current actor, what's his name again? Um, let me see. Uh, who plays Spock? Peck. 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 What's his first name? Mm, Ethan Peck. So he he featured, uh, of course, um, quite heavily in Star Trek Discovery. And um, but it's good to see that he, he you know gets into a more kind of familiar setting. And Star Trek: Strange New Worlds was was kind of pitched like classic Star Trek instead of Discovery, which tried to do something different um, and and kind of, I think, was 
presented to us as Star Trek in its in its in its uh, in its best form of 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 trying to break new boundaries and um, and 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 kind of eliminating taboos by doing stuff that we don't see that often in science in classic science fiction. Um, but it also well, I, you know, my thoughts about Star Trek Discovery. Um, it, it feels a little bit too too much. It's like, okay, well, can we focus on the story and on character development and trying to kind of uh, <laughs> hit all these marks for being groundbreaking, innovative, and hip and whatnot? Uh, so hopefully with this series, they will go in a different direction. The, the PR stuff that I read around this series seems to emphasize that this is for fans of the classic Star Trek, for who maybe Star Trek Discovery is a little bit too much. Um, so Goldsman is at the helm, I think. Uh, oh, the story is by, um, of the, at least of the series premieres, by Akiva Goldsman. Uh, Alex Kurtzman, of course, uh, very familiar with the Star Trek universe, and Jenny Lumet, I'm not sure who that is. And then... Um, Let's see, Goldsman says, in a career, there is never enough work that is pure joy. I feel that Kurtzman have given me, and, and, and the other people at CBS, have given me just that joy by letting me hunt the stock rooms of my favorite candy store, and I'm grateful with a hell of a cast and an undying love for the original series, we boldly go. I, I like that. I, that feels like, okay, they want to give us classic Star Trek. Um, and then Myers, who is Myers, Myers, Myers. Oh, that's the other, no. Who is Myers? I'm unfamiliar with all these names. Executive producer Alonso Myers writes, I'm incredibly grateful to be working alongside Akiva and our brilliant multifaceted cast to help bring the adventures of Starship Enterprise to new life. For, someone's who's been, for someone who has been dreaming of spaceships and alien worlds since I was little, this show is a dream come true. I don't know. Um, uh, I, I, I can't wait to see this series also because I was a little bit disappointed by the last season of Star Trek Discovery. We'll just have to wait and see. And I can always go back to the existing series. Still have to finish Deep Space Nine. Ah, once I'm finally in my new home, that's on top of my to-watch list. And uh, finally uh, finishing that. And then I want to also watch Babylon 5 and, and, and get through the entire series. I still have like three, three more seasons to go to see that thing in its entirety. Um, yeah, so a lot of, a lot of uh, great, great TV shows to be looking forward to. I watched one movie. Um, I saw that uh, on Prime Video, Amazon Prime, they had a sequel to Coming to, Ameri um, Coming to America with Eddie Murphy. I don't recall having seen the original, and I'm actually grateful for it because I rewatched it. I'm thinking, hey, you know, it's just one of those reboots. Or uh, I, I, I thought years and years and years ago that Eddie Murphy was hilarious and very funny, um, and then his entire career and personal life kind of, you know. He fell off the radar, and just I never thought they would do another movie, another comedy with him, but it kind of fits with all the other stuff that is being rebooted. Sometimes I'm thinking, are you guys just out of creative ideas and are afraid to start something new? It's, it's so cliche to just dig up another you know franchise and redo it or remake it. it don't play it safe. You know, <laughs> do something exciting. Uh, that, that's kind of how I feel about WandaVision versus uh, Winter Soldier. Um, WandaVision was like, I was like, wow, I, I love what they did. I love the risks that they take. I hope that Star Wars will do the same. Um, but uh, yeah, it's not always the case. But anyway, so I rewatched Coming to America, and my goodness, that is a pff, really, really not funny anymore. <laughs> it shows its age. Some people love it, and that's fine with me. I was like, wow, this is, this, this did not age well. Uh, and there's a lot of un completely unnecessary language and nudity in it. And it's all feels so over. So I don't know. We don't make movies like that anymore today. And there's a good reason for that. So yeah, coming to America, not recommend it. It's not fun. And from what I've heard, I haven't seen the, the sequel yet, but from what I've heard, it's the sequel is, it's not, it's, 
not as good as the original, which doesn't leave me with uh, much to hope for. Oh, well. Can't have it all. <laughs> Catholics rock! Here at the Peculiar Bunch, we're always happy to tell you everything you always wanted to know about Catholics and their tradition, but you were afraid to ask. Catholics can be a peculiar bunch. No meat on Friday. No meat? What do they eat? Light bulbs? Today I want to talk about a sacrament that is very important and especially relevant in this time of Lent. But there is also something that really irks me. Man, you guys got more crazy rules than Blockbuster Video. And uh, when I say something that really irks me, it has nothing to do with the sacrament that I wanted to talk about briefly here, which is the sacrament of confession uh, or, or reconciliation. And that, of course, is, is a beautiful sacrament in the Catholic Church that, that helps you make it, think about your life to acknowledge where you stand and what went wrong and what went well and to kind of make an assessment, but most importantly, to heal what went wrong and to heal you and to heal the situation and to give you an opportunity to start anew. I mean, what is, what is a greater gift than to, than to be forgiven and to get another chance? Uh, it's the greatest gift that you can give to someone else. It's, it's also one of the greatest gifts that God gives us, the opportunity to, to, to realize that the, your life is never completely broken. There's always a way back. There's always a new start that is possible if you want it, if you let God forgive you, then he will. But just like when you go to the doctor, you have to say, you know, this is what, what's wrong. This is, you know, he will ask, what's wrong? And you'll have to describe it in a certain way. That is also what the sacrament of confession asks you to do. And that's the hardest part, of course. It's to admit that you're not Mr. Perfect or Mrs. Perfect, that you have messed up, that you, you are ashamed of, of what you did, but more importantly, that you really want to start again. You want to get another chance. You want to ask for, for help and healing and strength and whatnot. That, so that's all part of the sacrament of confession. It puts you in a very, as a confessant, puts you in a very vulnerable position. Because literally you, 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 you let down all your, your curtains, your defenses, everything. Normally we project ourselves, right? We show to other people what we want to show. Look at the way we use social media, you know. Uh, we, we, even if we post a selfie of, of ourselves early in the morning because before our first cup of coffee and we, we title it, you know, Bad Hair Day, it's still to solicit a reaction that is affirmative. And so it's, it's a deliberate choice. But almost no one posts a picture of himself and tells a story on social media of, of you know, I... I totally messed up i did this and that and that no you don't want the world to know that well with the sacrament of confession of course the world still does not know but god knows and god you know he can handle it he can handle it better than you can handle it yourself but it is very important if you want to make a new start you also need to acknowledge where you came from and and you know someone can only hold your hand if you reach out if you let go of the burden of, of you know what 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 went wrong, so I I think it is a, a wonderful sacrament, and what also always as a confessor myself and someone who hears confessions, what always moves me is uh, is the trust and the courage of people to to lay their souls bare and to just admit that they failed, knowing myself how hard that is and how much I am a sinner myself and how much, you know, I have trouble sometimes trusting other people. But then to receive that trust from someone you don't even know all that often, uh, or oftentimes you don't know the person who is coming to confession, um, but to see someone trust you because you're a priest, and because they know that you're not going to tell a single soul that you'd rather die than to divulge what was said to you, that gives them enough safety to, to, to you know, really uh, 
present themselves, you know, as they are. And, and that's something I, I think that oftentimes that, that, that requires tremendous courage. Um, but it's also an incredible, I mean, it's a high price to pay. I'm not, I'm not, <laughs> there's no way around that. This is hard. But it is a gift. What you give in the sacrament of, of reconciliation is you give your vulnerability. You give this acknowledgement of your sins and of your mistakes as a gift to God. It is a sacrifice often but then god rewards that trust that you put in him and in this minister of the church with the grace of 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 forgiveness and and often joy i've seen i mean it's to me it's definitely a sacrament which is often misunderstood by people from the outside who think it's all about oh these catholics are always worried about their sins and they're you know there's this unhealthy obsession with what went wrong um Whereas I think, no, I, my experience of confession is it is a sacrament of joy. I've never seen someone leave confession with a sad face. It's always like this, this freedom, this new start, this, this new energy that they, they found, this relief of, of finally being rid of that burden. So I think this is a sacrament that we cannot um, value enough. That is what irked, that is why a news article irked me so much the other week that I read that in France there is a book coming out uh, and about 40 priests have contributed to the book by um, divulging what people told them in confession. The book is, is of course making the waves everywhere because it's like finally we get to know the, the last thing that the church tried to hide from us the secrets of confession and of course it's always about sex and it's all kind of like the way it, the book was pitched was i think in a sensationalist way to that people buy the book because they they want to know you know it's salacious it's about all the things happening under the blankets and the secret desires and blah blah, blah. um so that that is the first thing that i hate about this the way that this book was pitched and the second thing was uh, that uh, the writer defends himself by saying, well, no, but these priests have anonymized it and we wrote it in such a way that it is, you know, you can't trace it back to the original confessions. And then goes on to give you an example of, of uh, one of those priests who actually tells a very detailed story of which I don't think there are that many versions of that. And I'm thinking, if you were the one confessing that to this priest... And you see that in, in a so-called anonymized version, this is this is being divulged to a worldwide public, uh, worldwide audience. You would feel betrayed. You would feel violated. Your trust is trampled by someone who was supposed to be the protector of this trust, who is supposed to give his life rather than divulge what you have entrusted him, or you know. You entrust it to God, and the priest is a mediator, of course. But you're a guardian of, of that vulnerability. You have to, you're a protector. You should never, ever tell anything that, is, that, 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 that comes from, from what you've heard in, in, in confession because of, out of respect for the people that make themselves so vulnerable. So I was outraged, scandalized. But reading that there were 40 priests who contributed to that book. I was like, what in your mind told you that it was okay to do that? Now, and this, of course, is not just a legal problem. And it, this is a, it, this is totally illicit. Uh, it is a grave, uh, 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 I would say, infraction. It goes against everything that the church stands for. And there are also possible very severe consequences for the priests that have broken the seal of confession if uh the, so the canon law specifically explains that even if a priest divulges information in an anonymized form that it, you can't really trace back to specific uh, identifiable people that is still a very grave offense a very grave infraction 
Um, and the punishment for, uh, for that infraction is uh, to be determined um, based on the severity of, of, the, of, the, of the situation. So canon law can be very, um, let's say, can leave it up to a judge, for instance, or a bishop or a pope to determine the, 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 the right way to respond to such a, such a, a grave um, uh, infraction. But then uh, canon law continues to say, but if it is retraceable, so if I would say, well, this person with this name told me in confession this and this and this, that is a cause for what they call in Latin uh, excommunicatio late sententiae, which means automatic excommunication. So by doing that, by divulging uh, something that was said under the seal of confession in a way that, that directly incriminates uh, the person who confessed that particular sin, um, it means that automatically you have placed yourself outside the Catholic Church. And that is the worst, the, that's the biggest um, punishment that the, the Church has. And actually, it's not really the Church punishing, it's latte sententia, so it happens automatically. You did it to yourself. You did something, you broke the trust that was essential for that person to seek help. Um, you can never do that. And, it, you know, this is not just a church having rules like that. Look at um, your, your own physician, your doctor, uh, your lawyer. They are bound to similar rules where you can never divulge. Even journalists have these ethical standards where they will not reveal the source of their information if that source wants to, to remain anonymous. You protect it because your entire credibility depends on it. Uh, not to mention the safety of, of the people that bring you that information. And so, uh, fortunately, thankfully, I'm not the, not, the, not the only one who is outraged. Many priests in France have, uh, uh, um, you know, gone online and, and, and to denounce their colleagues. And of course, these colleagues themselves are anonymous. None of these priests have uh, told the, you know, have their names published, which makes it even more cowardly. So, it's like, what? That is so sick. And so I hope, I hope that the French bishops, maybe they've already done so, but I hope that they're going to make a very firm statement about this. And this, this should be taught in seminaries as a caution, as a, you know, but also as a, to take it as, a, as an example of why the seal of confession is so important. Because I think that this is on the level of physical sexual abuse. That's the same thing. You don't respect the boundaries of that person. You don't respect the integrity of, of the person that has been, uh, that, that, that trusts you as a representative of Christ. So things like this tarnish the entire faith that people have in, in the followers of Christ and maybe even, some, in some cases, in Christ themselves. And, and we've seen the ravages of abuse among the faithful and how many people have lost their faith because of the sins of priests and nuns and bishops and even cardinals. Why can't they see that this is exactly the same? And, and why in the world would, would priests do this? Now, of course, the entire book is uh, kind of like what it wants to, sh the way they're pitching it is, uh, oh, you know what? Confession is not that special because everybody, it's always about sex. It's always, but people always are ashamed of, you know, their extramarital adventures and uh, whatever. Um, and I'm thinking, well, if that's, the conclusion of the book, why write it? You know, what else is new? And, and, and I'm not saying this in a, in a, to, to kind of downplay uh, what people bring up in confession, but it's any psychologist or doctor can tell you that since um, sexuality is such an integral part of the human existence and everyone has, uh, has to deal with 
with uh, hormones, with the way that we're, we're, we're built. God has given us this gift of sexuality so that we would bring, you know, we would go and procreate. The Bible says it. It is the survival of, of humanity, and it's also uh, the, the fact that from a sexual union, new life can spring. is almost like a mirror of the incredible creativity of God giving himself and giving life to the world in abundance. There, there's so many, you know, there's so much positive about human sexuality, but it's also something that is like everyone has to deal with it, whether you're a pope or even saints. I mean, think of St. Augustine and all his confessions. Um, but that doesn't mean that it's something that you should just, you know, kind of look, these Catholics, I cannot believe they're still bothered by, by, by those sins on that level. I'm thinking, no, this is, but it's always important to take these confessions seriously, to talk about them, because this is about us, about the choices that you make in life. It's also your vulnerability, acknowledging that you, you are only very partially, uh, do you have your own life and your own hormones and your own body under control? And, but that doesn't mean that you're weak or, uh, or, or, or on the contrary, that this is something to be proud of. No, it just means that we uh, have been given this gift, but at the same time, it's an incredible energy that has to be regulated. Every culture, every religion has rules around sexuality and about, uh, about marriage, about family. And those rules are there to kind of, in a certain way, canalize this incredible gift. Because we're, you know, not always very good um, managers of, of, that, of that gift and of that energy. And so, um, and so, so I, I'm, I've never been bothered by, by people bringing that up in confession. Why would I be? It's just part of who we are. But it's also something that you can discuss in a, in a very safe environment. People are oftentimes more comfortable talking about uh, their, 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 the issues on, in, their, in, the, in their relation with a priest because, because of this kind of like distance that there is and because of that safe environment. Um, so that's, that's one thing I would like to say. So there is not a single priest who is surprised by anything you can bring up in confession. But that doesn't mean that we are bored like, oh, oh. Gosh, you're number 100 with that very same problem and the very same confession. Come on, give me a break, you know. Come up with something new. No, we're not there to be entertained. We're there to help, to listen, to help you reflect, to process things that went wrong and think about how, well, what, what else, you know, how else can you deal with the things that you're struggling with, etc. You know, it's... I think the, 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 the confidentiality and the seal of confession gives um, so much room to discuss the, the most personal things. And it's never in a context of like, tell me more, tell me more, did you get very far? Oh, of course not. This is, this is, a, this is like a conversation with, with your physician, a conversation with your best friend, with your husband, with your wife. And it has that same kind of, I think, sacred, sacred nature in a certain way. Plus, the other thing that I wanted to say is, um, I don't know what these priests told the journalist or what he filtered out, but come on. As if every confession is only about sex. That is absolutely not true. I have a totally different experience. Um, it, it's about the entire... It's all dimensions of life. And as a confessor, I'm also someone who can help people broaden their perspective. So if someone is very focused on certain aspects of his or her life, then it's my job to help that people to go beyond that and to also talk. Like I, my thing is always in confession, I always ask, to, what, it's all about a relationship. You know, what's your relationship with God? Where 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 do you think that that could be improved? Where did you kind of mess up? It's about your relationship with the people around you, your spouse, your man, your husband, your, your kids, your work colleagues. It's about your relationship with yourself. How are you treating yourself? Do you I mean, so if, if you put it in that context, if you have a conversation like that, 
This is nothing about curiosity or prodding or anything. It's about helping someone to truly see who am I? And what, what, what is my life right now? And how does God see me? And God always sees me as someone with incredible potential. And, 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 and if we make ourselves small, he will make us great. If, if we feel vulnerable, he will give us strength. If we feel sinful, he will give us forgiveness. That is, that is what confession is all about. Why don't they write a book about that? Then at least it adds something to the conversation. Oh, well. Anyway, I hope you understand why I was a little bit uh, irked. When did you become an expert in thermonuclear astrophysics? Last night. The packet. The extraction theory papers. Am I the only one who did the reading? Oh, I'm reading such a cool book right now. It's an audio book written by uh, two um, uh, scientists. Uh, Eric Scherder, uh, very well known here in uh, in the Netherlands. He's kind of the Dr. Fauci for uh, neuroscience. <laughs> so he's kind of the he's got that same gift as Fauci has to to speak in very simple to understand terms about very complicated medical issues, and even does it in a very inviting way where you like uh, it always gives you things to think about. And um, so, but he's really really good at at, at uh, applying uh the the um uh results of 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 neuroscience to your day-to-day life and so how can we now if we understand how our brain works and what it needs to to work in an optimal way then of course you can translate that to the the day-to-day choices that you make. And so this book, he wrote it together with Leonard Hofstra, who is more of a heart specialist. And the book is a back and forth between these two um, to show you how much the heart and the brain work together and how you can optimize your, your entire life by making choices that will help your heart and that will help your brain and help your brain. And that will also help your, your, your physical condition. Uh, it's fascinating. And I'm learning so much. I'm absolutely not familiar. I, I, I skipped biology in, in high school because at one point you have to kind of choose which, which uh, uh, direction you're going to major in. And I was a language guy. So I was like, okay, biology, I'll look it up. I'll Google it. Not that Google existed at the time, but I was like, I could always read a book later on if I want to know something about that. But let me first master French and German and English and, you know, that Latin and Greek. Um, so unfortunately, my, my, I never really got to, um, uh, never got around to studying, <laughs> to kind of catching up on, on everything I missed in biology class. But this book really, it really helps me to. And this is more about the physical aspects of it. It's not about psychology, but this is just about, you know, this amazing machine that we have, this, this brain and how it works and all the different areas in your brain. And, um, and, and so the, the, what I, I've not finished the book yet, but one thing that got me really thinking is, is about posture. You know, one of, of course, your, your brain is a, needs blood and needs health to work the best and so at one point he explains uh about you know food and uh, of course food can clog up bad food fast food can clog up your arteries the problem is that we don't always see immediate consequences of the bad choices that we make today sometimes those will reveal themselves at a a much older age and so that's why we keep making so many wrong choices when it comes to food um but also he was at one point he's about fasting and and uh, this is the, not the Eric Schroeder but the other guy who explains that uh, fasting uh, especially intermediate fasting um, often causes mental sharpness and I know this from personal experience it does actually make you really awake and it's almost as if you're like wow I've w- woke up from a coma that I've been in for years. Um, and, but he explains the context on why this is. And it is because when, for instance, animals are hungry, the entire system reacts and your brain also is like, okay, food, we need food, we need food. Okay, let's sharpen 
all the senses so we can find some food, you know? And the, so a, they've measured this in, for instance, in lions or leopards, that the moment they're hungry, they're so much faster. Their brain even works much, much faster and is able to, to, uh, to do things that normally when, when you're full of food, you know, the only thing a cat wants to do is to sleep in the sun. But when a cat is hungry, ooh, you'd better watch out. And you know, that's exactly the same where mammals do. So we too, when we are hungry, the result is our brain is like, okay, I got to be on top of my game because there, you know, I need to be able to find some food. Now, of course, we can just walk to the fridge and <laughs> the problem is solved. But the original reason for this mental acuity is still there and it and you can use that to your benefit and i remember just being so productive and so alert and even very creative when i was fasting um so yeah i'm telling myself when like i know this why don't I do this more often? Why am I stuffing my face with all this junk food? Just because I think that because I have to move and then my life is so busy, I deserve this crunch, crunch, crunch. Yum, yum, nom, 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 nom. Uh, we're so irrational. <laughs> anyway, so that is, um, that is fascinating. The other thing that uh, um, I already knew but uh, it made me even more aware of how important it is. It, it was about sitting and how much this posture of sitting is, is, is demonstrably bad for us. And it, it, it narrows your arteries, etc. So, And what is interesting, they, they give you the results of very recent research that says the first hour of your work is maybe the most important one. So if you go to work and the first thing you do is to sit for an hour... There's nothing you can do for the rest of the day that will counteract the negative impact of that on your system. So even what the Apple Watch does, you know, and my, even my uh, little uh, step counter does, it, it, it gives you a little buzz on your wrist telling you, you've been sitting for too long. And if you think that standing up and getting a glass of water or going to the bathroom is going uh, to mitigate the the um, the nasty effects of sitting, it it doesn't it doesn't. However, if during the first hour of your work you are not constantly sitting down, but you move, for instance, you walk, uh, you're active, you st even standing is and and you can actually prove that just standing instead of sitting during your first hour of work is having major benefits for the rest of your day, and your body will stay. Uh, more protected against the uh, the various aspects of, of of sitting all day long than if you would start with sitting, and that kind of goes counter. In, it's kind of a bit counterintuitive because when I'm still sleepy and it's early in the morning, I just had my first cup of coffee. The only thing I want to do is slouch in my chair and just uh, click, 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 scroll, scroll, scroll. I should be working, but hey, I need to catch up on my friends on Facebook, right? And, uh, let me just see uh, Instagram. Oh, that's cool. And you go click on a link and then an hour later, you're still sitting or like half asleep in your chair. And then, of course, <laughs> according to this research, you know, uh, do not do that. Another thing that was interesting to learn was that um, the, uh, uh, the, the, the best form of exercise is is not high in, it's not a uh, long long form exercise what i do running for an hour you know sure definitely better than sitting in a chair but uh, it 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 can't compare with the benefits of high inter intensity interval training where you you know for for a very short burst you you try to get your heart rate up to the max and then you let it slow down again. Actually, in running, that is a very familiar technique to, to, be, to become faster. Interval training. I hate it because it's... Uh, <gasps> I'd rather run for an hour than do interval training for 20 minutes. But, you know, <laughs> interval training is much more effective in, um, in improving your overall physical fitness. So I'll probably need to spend more time with... short. And then, then of course, also, like, it's better to do... Uh, a lot of uh, of exercise in small 
portions than do one big run once a week. I also knew that. And yet, uh, what I know is not always what I do. All right. <laughs> so that's, that's my, my, my uh, confession for today. What sort of science? Welcome back, science friends. This was the craziest article that I've read in a long time about Noah's Ark on the moon. Now, it was presented as something that was already underway and like, well, they want to create a lunar Noah's Ark storing 335 million seed, sperm, and egg samples on the moon in case, you know, global warming, world wars, whatever human, mankind does to destroy its own planet, that our progeny is safe, you know, on the moon. We can always start anew, just like in the biblical story of Noah, where God wants to kind of you know, do a control all delete on the world because people have forgotten him. And then, you know, but, you know, let's, uh, Noah, I built that ark because I just need some stuff to work with if we start again. Uh, it's the same concept, but then, you know, a little bit more organized maybe. Um, but this is not a real project that people are working on right now. This is kind of a proposal, like a, almost like a pitch that was done, that was presented recently um, let's see, in a press release for uh, the, um, what was it, the IEEE Aerospace Conference last week. So this is a paper by a researcher, Tanga, and a couple of his students. Um, and so the idea is Earth is a volatile environment, uh, we have, you know, disasters happening. Look at what happened to the dinosaurs, etc. Plus, mankind is pretty self-destructive. So what if we could repeat what, what we did in Norway? Uh, as you know, there's this doomsday vault. It's the, they call it the Svalbard Seed Bank, where hundreds and th of thousands of seed samples are stored in very low temperatures, to ensure continued biodiversity on this planet. And that has actually come in handy, uh, has been very useful for, uh, for instance, uh, certain animal or plant species that went extinct, which is happening actually on a much larger scale than we realize. So we, our modern countries are uh, oftentimes monocultures where uh, lots and lots and lots of diversity is eradicated just by the way that we grow our crops and, and uh and, and have industrialized um, uh, the, um, the, uh, the, the way that we grow cattle and, and process it. So anyway, so the, then in case a certain plant or a certain animal gets extinct, you can go to that bank in Norway and start again, basically. Now, the idea is to, to put all that stuff not on Earth because earthquakes global warming. Even in Norway, I think they're struggling with the rising temperatures and you, you need very, very low temperatures for for all these, these species to survive. Well, it's much cheaper to just put it on the moon where it's kind of cold. <laughs> it's easier to keep the temperatures low. So uh, the, the research paper shows you this underground a system of corridors and then elevator shafts and a laboratory, a cryopreservation module. Um, so because apparently in order to do this effectively, you have to cool everything down to minus 292 degrees Fahrenheit. That's pretty cold. <laughs> Stem cells, in order to preserve those, you have to cool them down to 320 degrees Fahrenheit. Minus. 320 degrees Fahrenheit. What is that in Celsius? Hey, Google. What is minus 320 degrees Fahrenheit in Celsius? Let's see. 320 degrees Fahrenheit is equivalent Holy moly. Degrees Celsius. Okay, so that is 160 degrees Celsius below zero. Ooh, that is incredible. So the, the, the Pfizer COVID-19 vaccine... Uh, we we heard about the you know ultra low temperatures uh, that it needs to be stored at, which is only minus ninety four degrees Fahrenheit. 
So here we're talking about minus 320. Um, in, in, in that kind of cold, even metal can freeze. So they've anticipated that. And so they now are talking about like a cryo-cooled superconductor material powered by quantum levitation using a powerful magnet so that everything can still function and not freeze and lock in place. Um, fascinating. So you use magnets to avoid metal-to-metal -metal contact for moving parts. Um, now, all of this, of course, is way in the future, but it's interesting to, to, to see that from a scientific technological point of view, we're able to conceptualize this. And it would take, of course, lots and lots of rockets to, to put that in place. I think they're talking about a couple of hundred rocket flights. So even cost-wise, this would be something that almost no country can do by itself. So it has to be like a, a communal effort. Um, but it's not unthinkable. It's not... It's, it's even feasible, and, and just, I like the mental exercise, and maybe the project itself will not get realized anytime soon, but it makes you aware, and that's probably also why they presented it, makes you aware of the fact that we should invest in our planet, and uh, maybe rather than putting all that money and, and technology into this arc on the moon, we should apply that same energy and that same the same resources into preserving the planet so that we don't have to store stuff on the moon kind of feels like a last resort you know it's like sure you can put some money in a bank and 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 that will give you a certain guarantee or safeguard against uh, problems you know financial disaster in your life but it's it's much better to just focus on your finances right now and make sure you manage that <laughs> the best you can so you won't have to go to the bank and you know get that little reserve to to survive or fix the problems that you've caused anyway just a few thoughts we are on the cutting edge of technology wow well what does that mean let's plug it in it's going to say hey i see you plugged in a new device and it's going to load in the appropriate drivers you'll notice that this scanner built whoa well all your technology stuff it just and it's a disaster. But there is one more thing. One thing that really fascinates me about modern technology, but also frightens me quite a bit, is all this deep fake technology, which by now you're familiar with. It's this, you know, uh, machine learning ability, uh, machine learning technology that can uh, allow computers to do stuff that you could never program. It has to learn it by itself. And especially when it... What is this? Okay, there's some machine. Oh, it's the... <laughs> I'm like, who is, who is in my room? That is actually the, um, what is it? The Amazon Alexa. Uh, but uh, I thought, you know, I'm, I'm a sci-fi geek. So the, I replaced the trigger word by... Um, what they say in Star Trek, basically. So whenever I mention that word that they use in Star Trek to activate the onboard um, artificial intelligence, <laughs> this one wakes up. It's like, um, can you repeat that? It always scares me because I'm, I'm, I, I only have one Alexa device and the rest is Google. So I never even realize that it's on. And so when it starts, sometimes when I'm watching Star Trek, it actually activates. And I was like, oh, what was that? Who was that? Who is this? <laughs> Identify yourself. <laughs> All right. But anyway, what were we talking about? Um, yeah, deep, deep fake technology. It is used quite a bit in, um, uh, in the visual industry now. For instance, to bring certain actors back to life. And uh, we've seen this, of course, in Rogue One at the end where you see a young uh, Leia, and later on also in, uh, well, The Mandalorian, of course, there's this famous scene at the end, and in uh, the last Star Wars movie, The Rise of Skywalker, we see Luke and Leia in their younger years, and all that is made possible by technology that is derived from, you know, the deep fake stuff that's going on. Well, I never, I never realized that with this, you can do way more than just creating cool, you know, surprises in a Star Wars TV series. 
there is this 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 service called Deep Nostalgia, which is actually a brand that stands for you know an ancestry type of service that you can subscribe to. It's pretty expensive. It's like 199 bucks a year. Um, but they've added something to the mix that makes it, I think that it's going to make them a lot of money. You can actually upload a photo of your ancient relatives. And it can, it can be any type of photo, even ones that are very damaged or faded away. And this deepfake technology will bring that portrait to life. And you may have seen some of those examples. It's stunning. It's absolutely stunning. I have no other word for it. You see this old crumpled black and white photo of an old lady that has been dead for two centuries. And well, I'm exaggerating a little bit, but then all of a sudden this face comes alive and starts like almost as if the person is posing for a, for a photo. And it's so lifelike. And I've read um, posts from people that are like, crying in front of their computer because this is the first time that they see their mother or father that they you know died when they were still young and they see that these the, the, the face come alive the photo comes alive and it's very very similar to what you see in harry potter with the moving portraits is that kind of movement it's just a little bit but it's lifelike enough to make you believe that there's actually you're watching through a, a piece of glass stunning now of course as you know people like to mess around with this technology so some people uploaded photos of of marble statues from ancient greece and rome and then you see this you know emperor caesar all of a sudden the the statue comes alive and starts like blinking and nodding and you're like whoa <laughs> that is uncanny and this is just of course face the face but i think over time this this can this can go very very far which is also scary it's literally scary you see these faces and you're like wow that feels like a a real like piece of video but i know that i'm looking at the face of someone who's been dead for for many many years uh, and and probably that person never thought never you know there, there is no recorded movement of that person. So the kind of head movements are still a bit of a, a guess by the computer that that person would move their the head and would blink like that. But it's so convincing. Ah. Well, uh, of course, in order to, to use that without limitations, you have to uh, subscribe to their service, which I think it's like 19-something per month. Mm. But you, I think you get the first five photos for free. So I think a lot of people will start playing around with this. And then, of course, ultimately, Facebook will probably just copy the technology and bake it into Instagram or something like that. Um, fascinating stuff. I'm, I mean, yeah, I'm both triggered and, 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 and getting all excited. And at the same time, I'm really scared by where this technology is going to go. And of course, it can also be used. Technology itself is neutral, but this can also be used and is already used by people for nefarious purposes. I, th I think the other day I read an article about a, a mother who was deep faking photos of rivals of her daughter, who was a cheerleader, and apparently there's so much rivalry going on that she deep faked photos, uh, portrait photos of her, of the, the other girls um, that were competing with her daughter uh, and put them in, in, in very salacious situations, smoking and worse, uh, just to get them off the team. And now she's being convicted for it. So I think there's going to be a lot of jurisprudence around this type of deep fake abuse. Um, but yeah, it even makes it even more important to really think about, um, you know, okay, what are the sources? Is this real what I'm seeing? You can't believe your eyes anymore. And well, our recent political mishaps have, I think, made us all aware of how dangerous that can be. So it's another thing that we need to learn, master, teach each other. Uh, can't believe your eyes. <laughs> All right, that's it for today. Thank you so much for listening. And if you want to hear more of me, I invite you to go over to fatherroderick.com. Basically, I'm Father Roderick almost everywhere on social media. And I'm the Pixel Priest in, when it comes to gaming. So on Steam and stuff. Even, maybe even, I'm not sure if my Twitch name is Pixel Priest or Father Roderick. I don't know. 
Just try both. Um, and then, of course, for my patrons, I have my weekly show called Father Roderick to the Max. And this week, I'm going to talk, I'm going to give you my um, pasta, spinach, cream, and mushroom recipe. I'll talk about the Snyder Cut. And uh, I will tell you some anecdotes from the wonderful gaming world of Valheim. I've been a Viking <laughs> for most of the week in my spare time. And I will tell you a few uh, stories about uh, recent film shoots in uh, Daventer, Dockham, Oak Marsham, and Amersfoort. All that and more in Father Roderick to the Max this week for my patrons over on patreon.com slash Father Roderick. See you next week.